there is a uh, pastor who has, I've been to a couple of conferences where he's spoken, a guy named Andy Stanley, who is uh, Charles Stanley's son, and a guy that's a little bit older than me, and one of the things he says at conferences to preachers is, if you preach out of your weakness, you'll never lack for subject matter. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about one of those areas, even in my own life, when I realize I ought to be farther along than I am. Well, you have those areas of your life where you look at sometimes and you go, why am I not past this? Why am I not through this? Why am I not beyond this? Well, this is one of those areas for me where sometimes I ask, why am I not past this? Why am I not beyond this? And it's this issue of comparison. This idea of looking to my right and looking to my left and seeing the people around me and comparing who I am and what I have and what I'm doing to those people around me. Now, to be truthful, comparison in my life started at a very early age. I was not the most athletic guy in the world. Now, I could play sports and even made a couple of all-star teams, but I was not the, the guy. And I had friends who were the guy. I had a group of guys that I played um, sports with on Sunday afternoons. We'd go to church on Sunday morning, and we'd go to uh, each other's house and play sports in the afternoon. And, and I had two guys all, that were really good friends of mine. One ended up playing starting four years of college baseball and uh, uh, being on the draft radar for the major leagues. And another guy that was highly recruited by SEC schools until he broke his ankle his senior year. And we played together every week. And so there was no way I could think I was a better athlete than most people because of these guys. So I would look around and go, you know what, I'm not the, uh, the most athletic guy. So I became a little envious of their ability. My parents were not the richest people in town. I know that's shocking when you know that I have two parents that worked in factories, but they weren't. One of my best friends, the guy that was being recruited by SEC schools, his dad was a radiologist. In Dyersburg, that was pretty big time. And we'd go to my house to play sports in the afternoon. I had one of those pop-up basketball goals in the driveway. And our bases were hats. You know what I mean. You just throw a hat out there. There's first base, second base. We even used a monkey wrench a couple of times for third base. When you went to his house, he had a basketball court out back. He had a baseball field with a fence out back. So I'd realize, you know, my parents don't have the most money. And as I look back on my life, I think, well, that was when I was younger. But the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us deal with some way with comparing ourselves to each other still to this day. In fact, our society kind of thrives on that. Competition, comparison, making sure you're where everybody else is, keeping up with the Joneses. How many of you have watched the Olympics this week? They've promoted the Olympics through this idea of competition and comparison, right? In swimming, what's the big competition? Who's the big rivals? Phelps and Lochte, right? They only swim, I think, three races against each other, but they're, you know, big-time 
competition. The track and field's coming up this week, and it's going to be Tyson Gay and Usain Bolt, the Americans versus the Jamaicans. And our whole culture seems to be set up this way. And if we're not careful, before we know it, we start falling into this trap of wanting to have what everyone else has, or at least have more than we already have. We end up being in this place where we find ourselves in the land of Ur. That's what I mean by Ur. Where everything we want, we want it to be Ur. Like, I want to be smart, Ur. Rich, Ur. Skinny, Ur. Tall, Ur. Happier, hipper. And some of you are going to be real upset about this. You just have to get over it because it's comparison trap time. Talented, er. And pretty, er. We live in this place where we just want to be er. If I could just be a little more whatever. Right? We find ourselves comparing it to other people and to our own lives. And before long, what happens is we become disgusted or distressed or unhappy with our own lives. Here's an interesting statistic. Some of you are are Facebook people, I know, because you're my friends on Facebook. And um, some of you are not. You're my friends in real life, all right? And so, but Facebook, here's an interesting thing about Facebook. They found, this is a study, that they were really looking at teenagers and early 20s. The more time they spent on Facebook, the more unhappy they were. Because they saw all these great things their friends were doing, and they thought, my life doesn't measure up to that. I want some er. Now, the truth is, if we're not careful, we become people that aren't in the land of er. We're in the land of est. You know, like, I want to be... Richest. I want to be smartest. I want to be happiest. Talentedest. Skinniest. Tallest. Hippest. Prettiest. And what we discover very quickly is that it doesn't matter how much er or est we have, that's not what we intend to live for. You've got your Bibles turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This is the thing we're going to be talking about today, and this is the thing that really, for the next, we're going to talk about this for the next three weeks in different places, but if you get nothing else over the next three weeks, if you get this, it'll it'll help you just in life, and that is, there is no win in comparison. There's no win in comparison. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you're somebody that knows the Bible and knows Ecclesiastes, you know Ecclesiastes is not the happiest book on the planet. It's one of the most um, well-thought-of books outside of Christianity that are in the Bible. In fact, philosophers have loved this book. Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, thought it was the greatest book ever written. Part of that's because it's a pretty depressing book. Right? I mean, we're, this, we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 4. But if you've got your Bibles open, just look with me before that. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Now look at verse 2. Now, you want to know about a depressing verse. Here it is. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. 
but better than both. The dead or the living is the one who hadn't even been born yet. Who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Get an amen there. Probably not. Right? I mean, this, this guy's not giving out the happy juice right here, right? I mean, he says, the dead are better than the living, and the best of all is one who hasn't even been born yet. Verse 4, and this is where we're going to be. I saw that all labor and all skill for work is due to a man's jealousy of his friend. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now, who's writing the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, the teacher. We think most people think that's Solomon, but the, the only identification of it is the teacher. So if we go to the assumption that it's Solomon, which I think is a pretty good assumption, what we know about Solomon is what? Solomon had everything you could imagine having. I, I can say this without any hesitation. There is nobody in this room that has as much money as Solomon had. There is nobody in this room that oversaw the construction of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There is nobody in this room that has as many wives or concubines as Solomon. Amen? If you do, we need to get you investigated, all right? Solomon had what would be everything you could imagine. And he writes this book saying none of it mattered. Solomon was est, right? He was the wise-est. He was the rich-est. He had the most power in that area. Solomon, first of all, he's given all of these things that are wrong with the world. And then he puts this kind of in the middle. He goes, one of the things that's wrong with the world is I see that every accomplishment of man is because of envy, jealousy, wanting to keep up with one another. And then he says this. This too is futile. It goes on in verse 5. Now, in case, in case people think, well, he's just telling you not to do anything, that's not what he's saying. In fact, in verse 5 he says, the fool folds his arm and consumes his own flesh. In other words, don't, don't be a fool and not do anything. Don't just be lazy because that's not the answer. But verse 6 reminds us, balance is necessary. He says, better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Here's what he means by that. He says, basically, the word picture there is better to hold everything you have in a palm that is open than to have more and clutch it tightly in your fist. I want you to do something with me. Everybody take your hand. Show me me your right hand. If you don't know your right from your left, put your hands up. The left makes an L, right? Right hand, all right? I'm glad some of you aren't putting up the wrong hand because you're just looking at me, all right? Now, take your right hand and put it out, okay? Now, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to leave it open and just feel how relaxed that is. Now, I want you to take both hands and put them out, and I want you to squeeze them shut. You feel how tense you suddenly can get? You can let go. The idea here is Solomon says that it's better to live life with a little in a hand that is open and ready to let it go than to live your life trying to clutch on to what you have. He said, because to clutch on to what you have and to always want more, 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 what you're doing is you're chasing after the wind. I was thinking about this watching the Olympics and how those guys spend their entire lives chasing after their goals. 
How many of you remember the name Mark Spitz? How many remember that name, right? Growing up, I heard about him at every Olympics. You know why I heard about him at every Olympics? Because nobody had ever won more gold medals in a single Olympics than he had, right? Has anybody heard his name this year? No, why? Because Michael Phelps won more than he did last time, right? Mark Spitz used to be called the greatest Olympian that we've known, especially in swimming. And yet this year, I haven't heard his name a single... Now, we heard it four years ago. Why? Because Spitz, because Phelps is trying to match him and go past him. And here's the truth. I was watching last night. and I, If you didn't watch last night, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you the results, even though they happened yesterday morning and we didn't see it till last night. Michael Phelps won in his last race, the relay, 22 medals, 18 golds, and they said that one of the teammates said, we told him in the team meeting, you're sharing a pool with a guy whose records will never be matched. And here's the truth. If Jesus tarries long enough, guess what? They will be. Sometimes I watch that stuff and go, how can anybody go faster than that? I was watching that 100-yard dash last night, the 100-meter dash, right? Somebody ran 100 meters, a football field, in 9.59 seconds one time. I can't get out of bed in 9.59 seconds. Amen? I got some amens there. And you think, how in the world can anybody ever go any faster? And guess what? They will. And I think about those guys that have spent their entire lives trying to be the best, clutching it with two hands when it's all going to be for naught at some point in the future. Better is one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the win. There's no win in comparison. And here's the reason. is because you never will come to the end of comparing. And there's always somebody that's got more. I mentioned that I was, uh, growing up, I was not the best athlete or didn't have the most money, but one of the things that I excelled at was schoolwork. The, the Lord just gave me a mind to be able to remember things, and um, I excelled in schoolwork. I, um, some of you know this, some of you don't, because it's not like the kind of stuff you, you publicize. I was valedictorian in my class in Dyersburg and made a really good score on my ACT, which means I got a really good scholarship to Union, and my parents rejoiced and still rejoicing to this day because Union's not cheap, all right? And I remember going into Union, and I, and I remember going into the admissions office and asking, do you think I can get any scholarships? And I remember the academic counselor there saying to me, you won't have any problem because we've never had anyone at Union with your scores. And I thought, whoo, that's big stuff right there. So I went to Union. I didn't pronounce that. I didn't go around, hey, wearing a T-shirt that said that or anything. Went through Union. I had all this time. And I remember going back to an alumni event a couple of years later, and the guy coming up to me and just pat me on the back and go, well, we got somebody that beat your score. In fact, two people this year. I thought, really, was that necessary? I'm out of school. All right. But I just thought about this idea that there's always going to be somebody with more. So how do we break out of this comparison trap? Well, 
The answer is a simple word that is hard to find. Contentment. Contentment is the escape. How many of you know this verse right here? This verse that uh, I think is going to come up next, if I remember what I put in right. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Where does that come from? Philippians chapter 4, right? Philippians chapter 4.13. I've heard that verse used a myriad of times, and rarely does anybody know the verses that come before it. Anybody know offhand Philippians 4.10-12? I'm not asking you to recite them, but anybody know what it's talking about? Contentment, right? Being content wherever you are. Here it is. Look at verse 10. Now, this is actually, if you're looking at a version of uh, Holman Christian Standard or NIV or, or uh, King James or any of that, it's not going to be exactly like this because this is actually a, a translation from a, a well-respected scholar that is breaking out all the Greek words into their full form. It says, I rejoice in the Lord. This is Paul writing to the Philippian church in chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because your thoughtful concern for me has flourished again. They had sent him some money, which was kind of a big deal because he was in prison. I know that the kind thought was there all the time. It was simply that you had no opportunity. He says, listen, I understand. You've wanted to help me. You've wanted to do something for me. You used to have the means to, and now you have, and I'm so appreciative. But he goes on, and this is kind of the backhanded way to say, don't send anymore. It is not that I speak out of a sense of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to be brought low. The word there is literally to be humbled greatly. And I know how to have wealth to abound. He goes on to say, In any and every situation, I've learned the secret of being well fed and going hungry, of having too much and too little. I am strong enough for all of these circumstances in my union with Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is modified or only has meaning in the context of Paul saying, I can be in whatever circumstance might come my way because of Christ. Now, that, that isn't as easy to quote before you run out on the football field, so it's not as popular. I'm strong enough for all these circumstances because of my union with Him who strengthens me. Can I ask you a question today? Would you be content in your life no matter what circumstance came? For some of you, the answer is real easy because you say, I'm not even content now. Right? I'm not content now. Now, say, what is contentment? Contentment means a settled acceptance of where you are and what you have. A confidence in being exactly where you are and in what you have. Could you say that I am strong enough for any and all circumstances? So you go to work tomorrow and your job is no longer there. You try to go to school tomorrow and it's no longer open, for instance. Anybody got that going on? Isn't that great when you got a three-week-old baby they shut down school for your boys? But I'm content in any circumstance. 
my wife, we're working on it. Any and every circumstance, you'd be content. Settled. Accepting. Can I tell you just something that I've noticed in my 11 years of pastoring churches? Dealing with people that pastor churches, talking with people that pastor churches, preaching in a variety of churches and situations, that one of the most difficult qualities for the American Christian to have is contentment. That's not new, because the Israelites sure weren't content, always complaining. But kind of like me, you would think I would have grown past my childhood days of comparison. American Christians are pretty good at still comparing and wanting and desiring and not being content. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a couple more passages in the New Testament that talk to us about this idea of comparing and, and contentment. But my question I want to leave you with today is this. What area of your life right now do you need contentment? Is it in your family? Is it in your finances? Is it in your job? Is it in your um, just your retirement? Is it in the pace of your life, whether it be too busy or not busy enough? Is it medically? Is it relationally? Where do you need to be content?